Hey, I have a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audio selections, ranging from books to podcasts to even meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I can listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author and the publisher do not sponsor me at all. Every recommendation is a book I personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 61 of History of the Marine Corps, The Conquest of Los Angeles. Last week's episode discussed the conflict on the west coast of North America. We traveled back to the beginning of the war and followed Archibald Gillespie's path, who was trusted with a secret mission by the Secretary of the Navy and the President of the United States. This episode gets into the conquest of Los Angeles. We follow Stockton, Fremont, and Gillespie as they make their way south and seize California towns along the way. We spend the second half of the episode discussing Los Angeles and Archibald Gillespie's struggles while defending the city. Thanks for joining, now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. While Archibald Gillespie was embarking on his secret quest through Mexico and California, the rest of the United States was preparing for war with Mexico. Most Marines were called into service, and Henderson left only a small sergeant guard to protect naval yards. Though Marines from the home squadron were selected to help the U.S. Army, most of them were still on ship. The Navy and Marine Corps essentially split into two squadrons for the conflict. Some squadrons focused on the east coast of Mexico, which we covered in episodes 58 and 59, and the other Marines boarded ships and headed to California. The United States wanted to annex California for a few years. It was also in the scope of European countries, and Great Britain had a squadron navigating the waters. The purpose of the British squadron was to reinforce their presence in Oregon and move into California should the opportunity come up. The Texas Revolution, California Revolution, and the United States officially declaring war on Mexico was that opportunity, and the British started to increase their presence in the Pacific Ocean. The Polk administration understood the risks of the British on the West Coast. Although the United States already had a small fleet sailing the Pacific waters, the Navy Department decided to increase their presence in June 1845. 
Commodore John D. Sloat was selected to lead this larger fleet, and he sailed in the Savannah to his new post. When Sloat received confirmation that the United States took Veracruz, he headed to Monterey. He arrived on July 2nd and joined the Cyan and the Levant, who were already in position. Even though hostilities between the two countries already kicked off and Sloat had his orders from the Polk administration, he hesitated with a lot of his decisions. One of his hesitations was the actual seas of Monterey. Although representatives on shore were keeping Sloat up to date on the current tensions in the area, he didn't act on the intelligence until he was pressured to do so. The U.S. consul at Monterey was Thomas O'Larkin, and he shared a lot of information with Sloat that encouraged him to launch his attack on Monterey. Some of that information included British activity in the area and Fremont and Gillespie's activities in California. With the extra information, Sloat decided to launch his attack on Monterey. He organized an amphibious landing that consisted of 165 sailors and 85 marines. Captain William Mervine was placed in command, and the amphibious force landed in the early morning on July 7th. Mervine made his way to the Customs House, a small building built in 1827 by the Mexican government. To go off on a quick tangent here, this structure was California's first historical landmark, and it's still there today if you want to visit it. He demanded Monterey surrender to the United States, but the Mexican commandant refused since he didn't have the authority to give up the town. But this decision didn't matter to Mervine, so he proceeded to take the town. This event isn't too exciting. There was no resistance to the United States taking Monterey. Mervine headed to the Custom House and raised the U.S. flag. As soon as the town was captured, most of the sailors immediately returned to their ships. And the Marines set up camp and established a garrison under the command of Marine Captain Ward Marston. As soon as the United States captured the town, Sloat issued a public statement that California now belonged to the United States. He promised the residents that he would protect them and their property and allowed them to stay if they remained neutral to the war. Sloat also allowed them to leave if they did not agree to these terms. None of the Californians seemed to have an issue with the stipulations, and many welcomed the United States. As soon as Sloat took Monterey, he sent a message to Commodore John B. Montgomery of the Portsmouth, who was off the coast of modern-day San Francisco, and directed him to take the town. As soon as Montgomery received the command, he assembled 70 marines and sailors and landed on July 9th at 0800. This seizure was similar to Monterey. As soon as the landing force assembled on shore, they took possession of the local customs house and raised the American flag on the same day. They didn't face resistance, and as soon as the town was captured, Montgomery celebrated with a 21-gun salute. He officially announced the same message Sloat shared in Monterey and stated that the United States now controlled California. Like Monterey, when Americans captured the town, most of the landing party made their way back to their ship. Left behind was Marine Lieutenant Henry B. Watson and 14 of his Marines. Watson was designated as the military commandant of Yerba Buena 
given a military force, and a whopping additional 12 Marines were sent to support his mission. Watson instantly began building the fortifications of Yerba Buena. He constructed a blockhouse, a small building with multiple openings so defenders can file in multiple directions. And he also built a fort and mounted a small gun from the ship to help with the town's defenses. In honor of the man who led him to the shores of California, Watson named his new, modest fort, Fort Mervine. Even though his defenses were up, and Watson had a small force he commanded, he lacked muskets and ammunition. There was a shortage in the area, and despite the Portsmouth supplying every spare musket they could, there still wasn't enough for everyone under Watson's command. To compensate, he sent expeditions to search for any muskets and ammunition in the area, and buy muskets wherever available. A week after the United States seized Yerba Buena, Commodore Stockton sailed in, on the Congress, ready to command the arena. Sloat was 65 years old at the time, and after a long career was ready to retire. He was also sick, and extremely uncomfortable with California's situation. So when Stockton arrived, Sloat was happy to give up command of the Pacific Fleet, and head back to the Norfolk Naval Yard for a less stressful command. Under Lieutenant Jacob Zylin, the Marine Guard on board Stockton's flagship visited Watson and his Marines on shore. They stayed at the fort for a little over a week, but by the end of July, the San Francisco Bay Area was declared secured, and they boarded the Congress and sailed to San Pedro on August 1st. With Northern California under the control of the United States, Stockton headed south to capture San Pedro. He reached Santa Barbara on August 4th, deployed his landing party of sailors and marines, and captured the town with no resistance. Sergeant Watson was placed in charge with 15 of his marines, and Stockton continued his voyage to San Pedro. He reached his destination two days later, and with the remaining marines still on the Congress, took possession of the town on the 7th. Stockton used this opportunity to prepare for his attack on Los Angeles. He sent artillery to shore and coordinated a battalion of marines and sailors that would advance on the city. Zylan would serve in this battalion as the adjutant. On August 12th, Stockton marched towards Los Angeles with 350 men in his command. Fremont traveled from San Diego and he teamed up with Stockton the next day with his 120 men, and the two forces prepared to advance into the city. On August 16th, Marines arrived, and the combined force marched into the city. They were able to take Los Angeles without any resistance, and commenced with the same ceremonies as with the previous victories in Northern California. The U.S. flag was raised, Stockton gave a public announcement about the United States annexing California, and the troops were sent back to the ship. As soon as Los Angeles was taken, Stockton assigned Fremont as the military commander in charge of Northern California, and Archibald Gillespie was put in charge of the South. In a little over two months, the United States conquered California. All known organized Mexican forces had either surrendered or fled, and even the Mexican government announced that they had lost California. Stockton guaranteed the protection of religion and property to Californians. He also held an election 
and the locals elected civil officers. Stockton drafted up a constitution for California. Although the constitution was never published or enforced, a copy was sent to the Secretary of the Navy. It listed Fremont as the governor and Gillespie as the Secretary of State. But Gillespie wasn't too enthusiastic about his potential new title. He had resistance to the role. He didn't feel it was appropriate for military men to hold this position, and he humbly stated that he didn't feel that he was, quote, competent for so responsible a position. He goes on to say that my tastes were entirely in my profession, in which I anxiously desired advancement, unquote. As Fremont and Stockton continued to head south on their conquest of California, so did Archibald Gillespie. He had a small military force of volunteers with him, but in the true spirit of the Marine Corps, Gillespie would do more with less. He and Fremont teamed up with the California Battalion, boarded the Cyan, and headed to San Diego to cut off the acting governor and commandant general's retreat of the Mexican army in California, Jose Antonio Castro. The Americans reached their destination on July 29th, and what happened next shouldn't be a surprise by now. A group of sailors and marines landed on shore, they took possession of the town without resistance, raised the United States flag, and officially announced Sloat's proclamation of California's annexation. Just like the victories before, an extremely small detachment of marines were left behind to guard the new U.S. city and the remaining forces headed back to the Cyan. However, this time Fremont received intelligence that Castro was planning to attack the Marines garrisoned in San Diego. Castro was aware of the small Marine force left behind, and he planned to take back the city on July 31st. As soon as Fremont received this information, he sent 100 men from the Cyan to reinforce the Marines. This show of force was enough to dissuade Castro from attacking the Marines, and the hundred extra men returned to the ship three days later, leaving the Marines again. The Marines would stay in San Diego for another week and a half until they were withdrawn as well. The Marines boarded the Cyan and headed to San Pedro to help Stockton. Gillespie was given the responsibility of the city, and he was left with a small, 48-man volunteer force. These troops weren't anything special, and even Gillespie wasn't too impressed with his options. He described those he commanded, quote, They were men unaccustomed to control, perfect drunkards, but serviceable riflemen in the field. They were men for whom the Californians could have no respect, and whom from the spirit of insubordination they constantly evinced. Unquote. Gillespie attempted to supplement his forces with locals, but they weren't willing to accept their new conqueror. They pushed back on Gillespie's presence, and the Marine pushed back in return. The reality is that the men under his control caused a lot of problems. As Gillespie described, most of them were drunks, and their frequent drinking was causing issues, not only with the locals, but with Gillespie himself. Not too long after he took charge of the military government, Gillespie received $20,000 to support his mission. He brought the money to Los Angeles, and the word of this much money in the area spread like wildfire. Rumors started to circulate, and some locals started to plan a scheme on how to get this money. In response, 
Gillespie arrested multiple leaders of these groups, but opposition continued to grow as the days went on. On the morning of September 23rd, it reached a tipping point, and a group of Californians attacked Gillespie's fort. About a dozen drunk men, led by Serbulo Varela, surprised Gillespie and targeted his residence. Gillespie was awoken by the gunshots in the front and rear of his headquarters. He gathered his men, took up defensive positions on the roof, and fired back at the alcohol-fueled insurgents. He and his 21 men were able to kill two of the attacking Californians before they fled. No Americans died during this attack. The rebels' actions motivated some residents to team up with Gillespie, and his forces grew to 59 by the end of the day. However, the motivation went both ways, and the attacking Californians saw additional support as well, and they grew to 140 strong. Gillespie was low on ammunition, and he sent a group of his men to collect any available ammunition throughout the town before the enemy does the same thing. He also focused on four artillery pieces in his fort that were previously declared unfit for service. Fortunately, he had two fantastic armors, and they immediately started to work on the dysfunctional cannons. Within a few hours, the armorers managed to fix one of the cannons and prepared it for action. When the group of men returned from their scouting mission, they reported that the enemy was preparing to settle on a hill overlooking his position. In response, Gillespie sent Lieutenant Samuel J. Hensley with 16 men to take the hill before the enemy had the chance. The cannon was loaded with nails and taken with them. This move was enough to persuade the enemy to change their plans, and as soon as they saw an operational cannon sitting on top of the hill, they retreated. But the harassment didn't stop. Gillespie was in a horrible position. He didn't have the men, supplies, or ammunition to defend against a large attack, so he sent a messenger to Commodore Stockton and asked for immediate help. The amount of resistance continued to grow against Gillespie, so the messages were written on cigarette paper and hid in the messenger's hair. Two days later, the fort continued to see growing hostilities. The defending Americans were painstakingly making ammunition, fixing any broken weapons, and building new cannons. Remarkably, the morale of the defenders was high. By the end of the 25th, Gillespie had a second cannon on the hill. At 1500, the Californians sent a messenger. They requested a four-hour truce, as Gillespie described it, quote, to give them an opportunity to make some arrangement whereby the property in the city might be saved from destruction and the country spared the great effusion of blood, which must necessarily followed by present state of affairs. Unquote. Both sides agreed to the four-hour peace treaty. Still, things weren't looking good for Gillespie. The Californian force now grew to over 400, quote, well-armed and splendidly mounted men, unquote. Mexican officials sent terms to Gillespie that called for the unconditional surrender of the fort and the release of the captured officers. The Americans were given until morning to make their decision. Gillespie was trying to buy time. He didn't have the numbers to compete with the growing Californian force. 
He needed all the time he could gather to build other cannons and give his messenger the precious hours needed to reach Stockton and Monterey. He sent two men to meet with the insurgents. When American representatives met with the Californian leader, he begged them to agree to reasonable terms. But Gillespie did not budge on his decision. This negotiation went on for two more days with little results. Tensions were growing on both ends, and it was only a matter of time before the Californians attacked the garrison. The next morning, Benjamin D. Wilson, an American politician and a trader in California, gathered 25 men and tried to come to Gillespie's aid. However, he took up shelter in a house for the night and was attacked by 200 Californians. All his men were captured. With the news of Wilson's men no longer available, came intelligence that an attack was imminent. In response, Gillespie repositioned his place on the hill. Another meeting was called between both parties, and the Californians offered their final terms. That night, Gillespie gathered his officers and discussed the next steps. The Americans were in a tough spot. They were positioned far from a water source, which could be a significant problem, as their supply was getting low. Gillespie reported the following after the meeting. Quote, it was decided to accept their propositions under the terms proposed, and that Dr. Gilchrist, he was a surgeon on board the Congress, should have full powers to treat upon an honorable evacuation of that place. With our arms, private property, and every article belonging to each individual, of public property, there was none. Save some $2,500, which I very soon made private and eventually saw safely deposited on board the Savannah. Unquote. The exact terms of this surrender aren't exactly known since the documents are missing, but Gillespie wrote the terms in Spanish in his papers. He wrote that the stipulations were to leave Los Angeles's plaza as soon as preparations can be made and will go to the ranch of San Pedro. From there, he would head to Monterey. The Americans could leave with the property and weapons with them, including the artillery pieces found in the plaza, but all remaining property would be left and turned over to the Mexican officers. And the last thing he had written was that the two sides would exchange the prisoners. The agreed-upon treaty stated that Gillespie would leave at 9 a.m. on September 30th, and Mexican forces would not come within three and a half miles from Gillespie and his men. On the 30th, the Americans gathered their supplies and started their retreat. After a short seven weeks and a relatively peaceful conquest of California, Los Angeles was lost again. Many historians blame this loss on Archibald Gillespie. And it's not hard to see why. He agreed to the terms and gave his word that he would keep this treaty. Although there are a few variables that led to the increased violence in the area, which included martial law and curfews enacted by Stockton, lack of reinforcements, and the fact that Los Angeles was the first point of attack in California for troops coming from Mexico. But the decision ultimately fell on Archibald Gillespie. In the spirit of trying to provide an unbiased review of who to point the finger at for this ultimate surrender, I'll leave you with a couple of resources. Historians who blame Gillespie for losing Los Angeles are Joseph Greg Lane, leading authority and bibliographer of California's history, Valentine Mott Porter, and John A. Husey. 
On the other side of the coin, the Historical Society of Southern California does not think Gillespie should be held responsible for this fiasco. Quote, Even if Gillespie had been the wisest of men, he could not have prevented the rebellion from taking place. If any one person is to be singled out as responsible for the uprising in the South, that person should be Commodore Robert Stockton. The regulations he set up, and his stupidity in leaving Gillespie with so small a force to hold what was probably the most important point in California, shows that he was either ignorant of the character of the people with whom he had to deal, or that he placed too great reliance in the completeness of their subjection. Unquote. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll finish up the United States' involvement in California during the Mexican-American War. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's suggestion is The Naval War of 1812 by Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt was one of the world's leading authorities of U.S. naval history, and this book was his first contribution. I used this book as one of my primary sources during our review of the War of 1812. It is considered one of the best references in the field and had a significant impact on the formation of our current Navy. This book is phenomenal, and if you are interested in U.S. naval history or the history of the War of 1812, I highly encourage you to read this book. If you're not interested in Audible, there are free PDF versions online. Go check them out. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.